As we approach the Word of God this morning, usually when I choose a text for a scripture reading, I try to choose something that complements what I'll be preaching on. And this morning, I'm not going to mention this at all later, so let me say just a brief word about it now. As we talk a little bit about leadership within Israel, in ancient Israel, as you see in the book of Exodus, and as we talk a little bit about leadership within the church, Peter, in the scripture reading that we just read a moment ago, underlies all of it with the importance of humility. And I want to stress that everything I say today comes in the context of understanding what God has described as biblical, humble, servant-led leadership. And I would encourage you, as God said, that we can cast our cares on Him, and that's a verse that we love. He said that in the context of believers lovingly and humbly submitting to one another. Younger people having the humility to honor and follow the lead of older people. And elders within the church leading well as faithful and good shepherds. And that is a word for us and for our church. And as we go to Exodus, I would ask that you keep that scripture reading in mind from 1 Peter 5. This morning, though, we are in the Old Testament in Exodus. And we are in Exodus chapter 17. If you're not familiar with the Bible, Exodus is the second book, and you can find chapter 17 just by thumbing through it. A lot of times I give you the page number. Sometimes I like to, to let you find it, and I would encourage you, if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, grab one of the Bibles that's under the seats around you in the sanctuary here, and follow along with me. I'm going to read every single word from Exodus chapter 17 in the course of this sermon. Months ago. I knew that I was going to preach through Exodus, uh, even as we were finishing our series in Philippians. And so one of the ways that I prepare ahead of time is I try to read through the book that I know I'm preaching on next so that I'm familiar with it as I go to prepare my sermons week after week. So now I'm actually reading through the book of Mark, and I'll have read through the Gospel of Mark several times by the time we finish the series on Exodus so that I'll be very familiar with it. And as I go to the Word, I'm not discovering it for the first time as I prepare my sermon for the Sunday. When I went through Exodus months ago, I left myself one note on chapters 16 and 17. I said, don't forget John chapter 4 and John chapter 6. John is a gospel in the New Testament. It talks about the life of Jesus. And in chapter 4 and in chapter 6, Jesus says a few things that are very relevant for Exodus. In chapter 4, some of you may remember, he appears to the woman at the well who is an outcast, who has not known the mercy of God, and Jesus offers her living water. And a little later, he promises living water to everyone who comes to him. You can read about that in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And he makes a similar offer that everyone who comes to him can have life through him. So you have water and you have bread and you have Jesus providing that for anyone and everyone who asks. Now, in Exodus, Exodus chapter 16 and 17, God miraculously gives somewhere around 3 million people 
bread and water in a desert and literally feeds his people and gives them water. And I thought it would be incredible to write a sermon on how Jesus did the same in his earthly ministry and how he continues to provide for us. My intention was to make it clear that Jesus is showing that he is the God who provides for his people. And I still believe that's something we should see in Exodus. And when we go through the Gospel of Mark, I believe I'll say a little bit more about it. But one of the things that I do week to week as I prepare my messages is I go back and I read each chapter or each section that I plan on preaching on. And my goal is to try and see what God has for our church as I preach through that portion of Scripture. And I discovered something that I had missed months ago and that I can't ignore. So this is not a message on how Jesus shows that he is one with Yahweh, the God of Exodus. I'll have more to say about that when we go through the Gospel of Mark. What shocked me about Exodus chapter 17 is how much Moses is emphasized and how much the leadership within Israel is established. Although God does provide for his people, as he provides for his people, he does it through the leadership that he places within Israel. And one of the strange and surprising ways that God chooses to work, God who is almighty and perfect, is he accomplishes his purpose through imperfect and deeply flawed people. We've already seen some of Moses' flaws in the course of this series on Exodus, but now we see him and others established with positions of leadership and authority within the community of faith. And I believe that this passage has some things to say to us in the church about how much we relate to authority within the church. Have you ever wondered what God intends the church to be like. Sometimes it's easy to take for granted the way the church exists, or sometimes people go the other extreme and dismiss it out of hand and say they don't believe in the church because it's not what Jesus established. It's changed and the traditions are not the same. The question is, what does God intend for the church to be like? And are we following his design and his model? And just like God strangely uses imperfect people within the context of Israel, he also made the church that although we are one in Christ, God has called some people to positions of authority and servant leadership, and he has called other people to submit to that authority, and he has told all of us to submit to one another in humility. So there's no place for prideful leadership within the church, but God still is in the business of putting flawed people in positions of authority and leadership within the church. And I believe as we look at the text today, we are going to see some of the pitfalls that may trip our church up, that may trip each of us up individually. And I believe that we're going to see a few ways that we can work towards the kind of unity and service that God intends for us to have. In this chapter, chapter 17, we are in the midst of a section between the Red Sea, remember God's miraculous deliverance as he rescues his people from Pharaoh and Pharaoh's army. He destroys Pharaoh's army, gives them incredible victory that they didn't do a thing to accomplish. And then he is in the process of leading them to Mount Sinai, where they will come to know him better 
as he reveals his law to them. We're halfway between those two points, those two major points in the book. And what's striking is that on this journey, God not only becomes acquainted with his people, but God establishes leadership within Israel. And we began seeing last week that the people grumbled against Moses, and Moses says to them very clearly, you aren't grumbling against me, you are grumbling against God. And God then uses Moses and Aaron to give the Israelites rules and instructions for gathering and using manna. So you remember last week, they're grumbling because they lack bread. God says, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. There is nothing that's impossible with him. But he uses Moses and Aaron to teach the people of Israel how to obey and how to keep Sabbath an eternal reminder of them that God redeemed them and brought them out of Egypt and that God made the world, made them, and rested on the seventh day and they are to follow his lead and learn how to rest and take a Sabbath. That was last week's message, but the principle still applies. God doesn't just address their problems. He addresses their problems through the leadership of Moses. And so this is the second passage where God does that exact same thing. He not only addresses their problems, but he does it in such a way that he establishes leadership within the community. God deliberately uses Moses and other leaders to meet the people's needs in order to show not only is he with them, but he is choosing to work through Moses and their elders, which are then going to be formally appointed in chapter 18. So this is a, this is a section on leadership. And my prayer is that we will take this opportunity to assess, are we following God's design and God's model in our roles within the church? So this morning, I want to do two things with this chapter. I've given you a summary of it just now. I want to demonstrate to you verse by verse that what I've just said to you is from Exodus chapter 17, so you can see it for yourself there. We will see God using leaders in providing water for his people and in providing victory for them in war, and then we will see God commemorate that in a permanent reminder. Finally, after we see what God has for us in Exodus 17, I want to look at how God has structured the church very briefly And see what there is for us to learn. So first of all, let's look at the first point of my message this morning. God's blessing in provision. God's blessing in provision. And read with me verses 1 through 7 of Exodus chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? 
That last sentence that I read, the doubting question of God's people, is the Lord among us or not? That's not what they came to Moses and led with. They didn't come up to him and say, is God really with us, Moses? Their doubt wasn't that audacious. It wasn't that brash. The question that they asked Moses was, can we have water? We are going to die. But this question of whether or not God was with them is behind the question that they asked. The presence or absence of God gets to the bottom of their trouble. They don't believe God is really with them, and so they don't believe that anyone will provide them with water, and they attack the man they believe led them to their destruction in spite of all the provision they had seen in the past. It boils down to unbelief. I am sure that they remembered in a cognitive way the miracles that they had seen. They still had bread from heaven six days a week. They had a daily reminder that this miracle bread was coming from somewhere that could not be explained by any earthly explanation. In fact, chapter 16 ends with a permanent reminder of the daily miracle of manna because God knows they are forgetful people, and so are we. And he instructed Aaron, put some of this in a jar so that you can take it out and look at it and say, oh yeah, God did that for us. Two verses later, at the end of chapter 16, after that permanent reminder, while Aaron is carrying this jar with a reminder that God provides... The people come to him and are thirsty and they don't make the connection that they picked up heavenly bread off the ground that morning. They don't realize that God is still with them. And they don't think that he didn't just redeem them so that they would die of thirst. But their throats are parched and their lips are cracked and they are convinced that somehow something has gone wrong. Their hearts have sunk so that in spite of what they may remember, they no longer believe that God is with them. And to be honest, it is very easy to have that experience where your mind knows what's right, but your heart can't believe it. At a marriage retreat that profoundly changed me and Lauren about five years ago, we heard a pastor named Daryl Worley describe how God had led him to the senior pastor position where he was currently serving. And in retrospect, those words that he spoke were incredibly helpful. They have been in many different ways, but particularly now. He was serving as a pastor, not a lead pastor, but he was a leader in a church. And he said that as the opportunity came up to serve in a different capacity at another church, uh, time out, I'm not leaving, don't worry. Um, as, a, as an opportunity came up to serve at a different church, he said that God's leading was unmistakably clear. He described all kinds of specific prayers that he and his wife saw answered, how they had confirmation from other people they loved and trusted, and that they knew they were following the Lord. So he quit his job, took the position of senior pastor at another church, And he said that in spite of all the prayers they'd seen answered, and in spite of God's clear leading, it was over a year before they felt confident 
that they were doing what God had asked them to do. And the reason is this. No matter how clear and direct God's leading and provision are, we are always tempted to doubt it as soon as we face any difficulty, no matter how small or how large. In those moments, it's easy to look at where you're at, to wonder, how did I get here? Where is God in this moment? Is God really good? He may have provided in the past, but will he provide now? Did I really hear from him in the past or was I just confused? And in fear, it is easy to distance yourself from your church, from your fellow Christians, and to discredit the leaders that God has used to speak to you in the past and to come to a place of isolation and fear and doubt. And that's exactly what Israel did. They discredit the leader that God gave them and they fight against Moses. Notice, we just read the text. God is the one who commands them to move in verse 1. It says that they moved out from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. So there's no mixed signals here. They are following God's clear instructions. And yet God led them again to a place where their faith was tested. And the test does not go well for them. It's so bad that Moses is convinced the people want to kill him. And in response, Moses, God tells Moses to take the leadership of Israel with him and he will miraculously bring water out of a rock that again validates that God is working through them. So think about these two miracles for a second. Bread from heaven, something that no one had ever seen, something that we haven't seen since, and water out of a rock. Rocks are really dry. This is not something that naturally happened. You would think this is clearly evidence of the supernatural. And I think at this moment, it's very reasonable to ask, God is working these incredible miracles. Why does he even bother with Moses? God could have provided water in any way he chose. He could have made it rain. He could have said, put buckets out. It'll come down from the sky. He could have created a geyser. He could have done anything he chose. He did not need Moses. But he used this as an occasion to establish Moses' leadership and ultimately of the leadership of the elders in Israel, as we'll see in Exodus chapter 18 in January. The question is, How does this relate to their unbelief? Well, I believe that God deals with that in part by establishing again Moses' leadership so that as the people ultimately hear the law of God from Moses, they know Moses did not make this up. This is from the Lord. And this journey, as much as it is a journey where they become acquainted with God, is a journey where they learn to follow the leadership that God establishes. Moses, following God's instructions, goes with the elders of Israel, who are responsible for leading the people spiritually. And the people see Moses with the elders, and the elders directly see Moses follow God's commands, and they witness firsthand the miracle gushing from a rock that was sufficient for somewhere around 3 million people plus their animals. 
This is the second time that God has provided for his people's basic needs like this. And I already mentioned, they have a jar of manna that was preserved for memory, so they should remember what God has done. And this time, God also gives them a way to remember it. They name the place where God met their need and provided for them after the conflict that they have. This is not a happy reminder. This is a reminder that they were not satisfied in God. Instead of naming it after abundant water or naming it a well or a spring or or something that would encourage them, Moses names the place Massa and Meribah, which means testing and quarreling. God tested them and they fought God. You get the sense that this exodus is not going well. If you remember, just before they crossed the Red Sea, the scriptures describe the people as marching out victoriously, ready for war. But now, they're not fighting their enemies, they're fighting their leaders. And God knows, at that time, on the other side of the Red Sea, they're not ready for battle. But now in his sovereignty, he leads them into war and gives them a second sign of how he will bless them through the leadership that he has established. And so my second point for today is God's blessings in war. Read verses 8 through 13 with me. Scripture says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And so Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Remember, Moses is somewhere around 80 years old here. He's not a young man. And notice a few things. First of all, this is now the third time that God's people have faced an opposition somewhat like this. And again, God uses leaders to overcome the opposition. And notice that there are several people serving in different capacities during this war. Some fight under Joshua's leadership. So there's Joshua as a leader, as a general. There are people who fight underneath that kind of military leadership. Their success depends not on their own ability in war, but on Moses standing as the prophet of God, bearing the symbol of God's leading, holding it high. And Moses cannot stand alone. So there are also people who support him in a very visible way. We already saw how God used the elders just a few verses ago. The elders recognize Moses' leadership, and their job is to help the people faithfully follow God, who is leading through Moses, so they can testify, yes, we saw Moses work this miracle. Now, we see that Moses actually cannot lead alone. And in chapter 18, we're going to see Moses give these elders specific responsibilities. So that's in a future message somewhere after Christmas. We are in a passage that demonstrates how God establishes his leadership. But for now, for today, 
notice that the victory that God accomplishes through Moses and Joshua is total and complete, and there is no denying that God Himself has done it. The reality is, God wins this victory for them. These verses make it obvious in saying that when Moses is holding up the hands, the children of Israel win the battle, but when he lowers them, they lose. This is not a military strategy. This has never worked in any other context, and we should not try it. The evidence that God is working is that the victory that they achieve is accomplished in connection with Moses bearing the staff of God. He is giving them a visual picture that says, this is your leader. I am working through him. And his involvement, God's involvement, is even more evident in the way they commemorate the victory that shows them that God is with them. In spite of their fear, in spite of their doubts, he is blessing them with a sign that, yes, I am with you in your trouble. And so my final point for today is God's blessing in memory. God's blessing in memory. Look with me at verses 14 through 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Notice, God clearly speaks to Moses and tells him how to commemorate this victory. In verses 8 through 13 that we just read, you don't actually see him receiving instructions from God. Moses is exercising the leadership that God has given him. But now in retrospect, you see God affirming that leadership and telling him to commemorate this victory in a book. A book is a living memory that you can always look back on to see what God has done in the past. And Moses not only writes this down in a book, but he builds an altar so that anyone who walked by the place of battle could look at it and remember what God had done. And he names the altar, The Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. Think about a banner for a second. Every country flies a flag. They fly a banner. And that symbolizes for them who they are as a people. And when Moses builds this altar and says, the Lord is my banner, he's not pointing to colors. He's not pointing to symbols. He is saying that God himself is the evidence of who we are as a people. And you can't look and see God visually, but you can look and know that God gave us victory through the leadership that he established. You can see it on the battlefield where a weak group of disorganized refugees beat an incredibly powerful army. They're saying, we have the Almighty himself as our sign, as our symbol. You might not be able to look at it and see it, but you can see the results of his presence in our victory So Moses writes a book and he builds an altar, both as permanent reminders of God's provision because they, like us, are forgetful people and need to be reminded. So in moments of weakness and in moments of doubt, they can open the book and remember what God did. 
We see the importance of God's people remembering over and over again throughout the book of Exodus. And this is just one more example. But I want to, want to remind you the basic problem that they had in the beginning of this passage in chapter 17 as they grumble against Moses. Verse 7 says, the people tested God himself saying, is God among us or not? They test God by grumbling, not directly against God, but through Moses, his leader. And so this altar and this book is a permanent reminder that God is actually with them. Their question is, is God here? This book says, yes, he is. So the question is, what does that mean for us? We're not in a desert following some old man with a staff. We are here in Holly, Michigan, remembering who Jesus Christ is and seeking to follow him and his leadership. And as we look at the Old Testament, there are similarities and there are differences between the people of God and the church. One of the differences is that in the Old Testament, God led his people through prophets like Moses and kings like David and pastors and leaders in the church are not prophets or kings. We are not even priests in the way that they were. And in fact, we believe as Protestants that all of us are priests. All of us have the ability to go before God. The book of Hebrews says that so clearly. Peter also says we are a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. And so there is real differences here. All of us as believers in Jesus serve Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate prophet, priest and king. The scriptures teach that every believer is a priest who can go directly to God without an earthly priest. So I, as a pastor, am not a mediator. You do not need to come to me with your prayers, although we can certainly pray together and we should. You have access to the father through the blood of Jesus. So our leadership is different. It's not the same. The scriptures teach that God has appointed leadership within the church. However, we all serve the same Christ. We are all part of the same body. But his word is clear that all of us are called to a role of humble submission to one another and to that leadership. You may be here today and, and you may not be a Christian. And if that's true, we are glad you are here. You are welcome. But let me say this. This message will make zero sense to someone who has not trusted the Lord as Savior. There is no reason to consider anyone in the church as a leader if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, our ultimate leader. If that's you, the first thing to do is to trust in Christ who died for your sins and rose from the dead. But if you have trusted in Christ, let me say this to you. Being part of a church is not an option. God has made you part of his family and the church is God's people. God wants you to be part of a church. It is all over the pages of the New Testament. We are a community, not of good people. We are a community of sinners who have been forgiven because of the blood of Jesus. All of us have sought God's rescue through our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And we believe that God has called us as a church to spread the message of forgiveness through Jesus by serving in different capacities. And some of us serve in leadership 
And if you choose not to submit to the leadership of a church, and the first way to do that is to just not come to church or be part of a church or to not attend regularly, if you choose to not to submit to a leadership within a local church, you are being disobedient to the Lord himself. This, in a lot of ways, is a very difficult message to prepare. Partly because... As a leader, I feel enormously uncomfortable standing here and lecturing you about following leadership. God uses leaders to bless his people. And he does expect his people to support their leaders. I want to be incredibly careful. Because I do not, in a million years, want to seem like I am grabbing for some sort of power. That is not the sort of thing that Jesus approves of. I know I will stand before him and give account for how I lead, and I want nothing to do with that kind of power grab. On the other hand, knowing full well that I will give an account to Jesus for how I lead, I would be negligent if I did not point out what the text of the scriptures clearly describe. God does expect his people in the church to submit to authority, as we heard from the scripture reading in 1 Peter 5. The sins that Israel committed are things that we need to learn from. And their example of doubting God's presence and then grumbling against their leaders is something that is repeated over and over and over again in churches all around the world. We may no longer have prophets and priests like Israel had, but we do have leadership established by God And God does expect us to serve together in humble unity. And so let me say as your pastor who has been here for a year and a half, at the age of 34, it is not easy being a pastor. But I do believe that God has called us here and I want to be faithful to his calling. And so if you are part of this church, I want to ask you to let this sermon be a time of recommitment where we as God's people together commit to spread the good news of Jesus, each of us serving together in humble unity, submitting to one another, and also submitting to church leadership. If you believe that God has led you here, then you need to be faithful to what He has called you to do. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 12 about how the church should function. And as I prepare to close, I want to read a few verses from Romans chapter 12. So if you turn there with me, Romans chapter 12, I'm going to read verses 3 through 8 as Paul describes how this sort of leadership within the church should function, first of all, with the metaphor of a body working together in harmony, in unity. So Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This passage teaches 
that although God has set up leadership within the church, there is no place for prideful leadership. All of us are equal in Christ. All of us are parts one of another. And all of us are called to serve. And within that context, he has given us each different gifts. Paul lists just a few of them. There are several passages that list others. But for the the purpose of today's message, I want to point out that he calls those who lead to lead with zeal. That means that there are some of us, as you look around the faces here today, who are called to a kind of leadership that other people are called to follow and submit to. And if we want to have a clear picture of what that leadership looks like, God gave us four books that I've mentioned today in the New Testament that describe what that is. And I would encourage you as my first point of application for today to take some time, perhaps this week, and read through one of them. In the book of Acts, you see history that shows you how God's church functions. In the books of First and Second Timothy and Titus, you see Paul's instructions to young pastors that describe exactly what the roles of elders and deacons should be like, how men and women should serve together in humble unity. And I believe it would be good for all of us to regularly read and review those books. And when I say regularly, I mean perhaps every year. We should have one eye on the text of Scripture and one eye on First Baptist Church of Holly to see if our church is obedient to what the Lord has instituted in Scripture. And so as I give a few points of application today, let my first be this. Let us as a church be committed to reviewing what the Scriptures teach about leadership so that we can make sure that we put it into practice. And let me ask you, would you be willing to read one of those books this week? Either Acts, First and Second Timothy, or Titus. Let's see what God has for us as a church. And that is my first point of application. Let's check the scriptures and ask, are we being faithful? Specifically, let's check First and Second Timothy and Titus as well as Acts because those books offer the clearest description of church leadership humbly submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. But second, let me ask you, are you currently submitting to the leadership of your church? This is hard in a church our size because the leadership is very visible, warts and all. You see us up close and personal. And it's not difficult to know our weaknesses and our flaws. A few weeks ago, I spoke about the reality that leadership is not just pastoral leadership. It's not even limited to the leadership council. The passage we heard from 1 Peter 5 described younger people submitting to older people. And there are many leaders within this church. I believe that it is broader than our council. It includes mature Christians who serve in both official and unofficial capacities. Our church is blessed with some amazing people. Let me ask you, do you submit to any of our leaders? If the idea of submission to leadership in the church seems awful, remember remember the passage we just read in Romans. It is to be a humble servant leadership. And before it talks about anything else with the gifting that we have in our different roles, it talks about humility that is for the entire church, especially leaders. That humility is to lead us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that means leaders who are proud, 
need to be lovingly reminded of what their leadership should be like. The biblical model for leadership is humble, sacrificial service. With that humility in mind, I want to ask you a very pointed question that I read in a book by Ray Ortland. Wrote a short book on the gospel, and he said, Who in the church do you submit to? Who in the church do you submit to? That is a really, really good question. If we're each our own bosses, doing whatever we want, we are badly falling short of the unity that Christ has called us to be in the church. Unity that is organized under biblical leadership. So let me ask again, who do you submit to? Can you write a list of names in your notes? Can you picture their faces? Because if you cannot be specific, there is a good chance that you are not following anyone in submission. And let me add that the test of leadership is not in times when God is blessing. The test of leadership is when things are not going well. And we wonder, is God here? Is God in our midst? If God has taken us to a dry place where there's no water, and we begin to wonder, has something gone wrong? That is when our leadership and our humble submission to it is truly tested. And we need to be faithful and see if God is really at work in our midst. I believe there are two ways that we can commonly fail to submit. And let me give you each of them. First, this is so common, especially in America, we can avoid real fellowship so that our lives never fall under the authority of the church. This is possible if you just casually attend occasionally. It means you have no relationships with people in the church. It means you may not even know who the leadership of the church is. And it means that your sins will be unconfronted and your services will never be given to the cause of the body of Christ. That's a kind of passive and lazy way of rejecting church leadership. You just don't become part of the church. The other way is more active. We can fail to submit to leadership by actively discrediting and dismissing the people we see within our local church, perhaps for very real flaws. No one is pretending that our leaders are perfect people, and it is easy to discredit us based on the flaws that we have. There is never an excuse to disobey God. Let me be clear and say this too. When biblical leaders are out of line, God says they should be confronted publicly. So God does not tell his sheep to blindly follow wicked shepherds. There is accountability for leadership as well. That's a different message. Today I want to ask, are you submitting to the leadership of our church? All of us are tempted to discredit biblical leaders when we are in sin or when we just don't want to be part of God's fellowship. Sometimes we fail to submit to church leadership because we love our sin. And so if my first point of application was, review the scriptures about leadership with me, my second point is, check your heart. Are you submitting to leadership as God has instructed us? And can you name the names of the leaders that you submit to? 
The last verses I want to share to you come from the book of Hebrews this morning. And Hebrews 13.7 says this. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That last sentence is huge. Consider the outcome of their way of life. I think, in other words, the fruit of godly leadership should be obvious and attractive so that you imitate and follow godly leaders. Let me also read verse 17 from Hebrews chapter 13. The writer says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. As I close, let me ask you to do two, two additional things. Regardless of where you are with checking your heart, reviewing our leadership, do these two things as we seek to move forward following the Lord. First of all, pray for your leaders. Pray for us. Some of us are shockingly young and horribly inexperienced. Others are shockingly old and wonderfully experienced. You can praise God for them. Pray that we would have wisdom. Pray that we would have humility. Pray that we would be filled with the Spirit and pray that we would follow God's leading in all things. Pray. Pray that God would raise more of us up. Pray that we as current leaders would be faithful to disciple the next generation. God willing, when I am a very old man, somewhere in my 50s, I would love to be able to point to people who have grown to maturity through our ministry here who will lead the next generation. Pray for the next generation of leaders. And finally, if this message has convicted you, if you have realized that you have not been part of the church as you should be, or if you have perhaps resented the leadership that we have, perhaps gossiped, perhaps grumbled, then repent. I believe that God is at work here and we need to be united. We cannot serve the Lord if we complain about each other. And so if God has convicted you of sin, let me urge you, before you leave today, spend some time repenting in prayer. Let's pray now. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we are thankful to you for what you have done for us, Lord. The miracles are astounding. That you loved us so much that you gave us your Son who died in our place. And Lord, we believe that you have established your church, that you are building your church. And Father, as First Baptist Church of Holly, we want to be part of that. Lord, make us faithful to lead well, to proclaim the gospel, to raise up disciples. We ask your forgiveness for times when we have not been obedient, for times when we have grumbled. We pray that you would heal us. We ask that you would remind us of what you have done in the past and that you would equip us for years and generations of faithful service until the Lord returns. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.